Turn with me to Isaiah. Let's start in chapter 42 tonight. Just for a moment. If you need a Bible, that can be arranged. The Bible, no shock to anyone here, teaches history in advance. And my go-to verse when someone raises their eyebrows at that has always been Amos 3.7. The Lord does nothing without revealing it first to his servant, the prophets. But over the last few weeks in Isaiah, the Lord has reiterated that in this book of the Bible. Behold, Isaiah 42, verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I told you stuff that was going to happen, and it happened. And I'm telling you more stuff that's going to happen, and it's going to happen. God says through Isaiah. The Bible gives us history in advance, not just broad fortune cookie generalities, not one-sized-fits-all horoscope fortunes, but dates, names, places, events with specificity that could only originate from outside our space-time continuum. Only someone standing outside of history who sees the end and the beginning all as one continuity could speak the future into our timeline with such exact specificity. And one of my favorite examples of this we find actually in Daniel and in Isaiah. Don't go to Daniel yet, but we're going to head there before we're done. Let's, let's remind ourselves of the background, the period that we're studying. 606 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon overthrows Jerusalem. There were two successive attacks, two successive assaults on Jerusalem, each more, more fierce, more vicious than, than the one before. But in 606, Nebuchadnezzar assaults Jerusalem. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, is reduced to basically a puppet. At, at that point, Judah was a vassal state under Babylon. Why is this important tonight? Because that's when Daniel and his friends are carried off to Babylon. That was part of Nebuchadnezzar's foreign policy. He would mix the peoples that he conquered, the people groups that he overthrew, trying to create a homogeneous people under his rule. He would also, at the same time, cherry-pick some of the elite some of the leading citizens, some of the scholars, some of the engineers, the, the, the leading people of each uh, city-state that he conquered and, and bring them in the hopes of tapping into their unique knowledge and intellect and expertise. That's how Daniel ends up in Babylon. While Daniel's there, Daniel chapter 2, he interprets a dream or two, you know, as long as he's there, and ends up, as a result, Nebuchadnezzar's chief of staff, leading advisor, something along those lines. Nebuchadnezzar dies, because 10 out of 10, 10 people do. As, as he dies, the empire gets weaker and weaker. Meanwhile, Cyrus and the Persian Empire are getting stronger and stronger. 
550 BC, Cyrus conquers the Medes. 547 BC, we think, there's some dispute about that date, but 547-ish, he conquers Lydia. We're going to come back to that before we're done. Subsequently, he conquers Cilicia, he conquers Phoenicia. 540, he conquers Elam. 549, uh, 539 BC, Cyrus attacks and defeats the Babylonians and the empire stands until Alexander comes along in 331. But here's the part I love about this story. When Cyrus makes his appearance in Babylon, Daniel greets him. We, we, we believe that that's true. Josephus, the first century Roman historian, tells us the story that when Cyrus shows up to, to, to take possession, essentially, of Babylon, Daniel is there to greet him with the scroll of Isaiah open to the end of chapter 44, the beginning of chapter 45, and says, hey, we've been expecting you. God gave me a message for you. Isaiah 44, this is where we left off last week. We read it, but we'll read it again. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I'm the Lord. Let me introduce myself. I'm God, who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah you will be built, and I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, I'll dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. That's where we left off last week. We commented that those four or five verses are one sentence in the Hebrew. Let's continue and cross over into chapter 45 tonight. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. This is God speaking to Cyrus. Cyrus, who, who God ordained to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I've even called you by your name. I've named you, <coughs> excuse me, 150 years before you were born, I've named you, though you have not known me. I'm the Lord and there's no other. There's no God beside me. I'll gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. There's a few things that are remarkable about this. Keep a finger in Isaiah. We'll come back. But turn with me to Daniel 5. If I sound excited, this is part of my testimony. This study that, that we're undertaking tonight is a study that not the first time I heard it, but the second or third time through, 
put me well on my way to surrendering my life to Jesus. So this is special to me. Background to Daniel 5, this isn't prophecy, this is history. Or to put it another way, this is fulfillment of prophecy. If prophecy is history written in advance, and Daniel 5, we're going to read the fulfillment of the prophecy we just read. This is a record of the night that Cyrus invades Babylon. The night of the invasion, Nebuchadnezzar is gone. His son, Belshazzar, is throwing a banquet, which is foolish because to those paying attention, there were signs that a Persian invasion was on the horizon. It wasn't completely out of nowhere. But Belshazzar was confident in the city's defenses. Double wide walls, so wide you could have chariot races on the top of them. 250 towers around the city, 100 gates of brass. So he's throwing a banquet, confident that whatever the Persians throw at them, their city is more than capable of repelling. Belshazzar, verse 1, the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Bring everybody. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Let's, hey, as long as we're having a party... Let's celebrate our victory over Jerusalem. Let's, let's mock them by partying, by chugging wine out of the silver and gold vessels that we confiscated from the temple. You know, the temple where they worshipped the God of Israel. Yeah, that's going to end well. They brought the gold vessels, verse 3, that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine in praise of the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Yeah, this isn't going to end well. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand and the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote, this disembodied hand. The king is watching it right. You've heard the expression, the handwriting on the wall. This is where the expression comes from. The handwriting's on the wall. The jig is up. Because that's what the message is going to be. And Belshazzar seems to know that's what's coming. The king's countenance changed, verse 6. And his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Okay, that's polite King James English. What's going on here is he lost bowel control. But make a note, because believe it or not, we're going to come back to that. For our purposes right now, Belshazzar's freaking out. And you would too. There's a disembodied hand writing on the wall. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, royalty, and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, his countenance changed, and his lords were astonished. Because clearly, something supernatural is happening. 
and look, that it's happening at all is significant. Disembodied hand writing on a wall, that doesn't happen every day. The fact that it's happening with the Persian army somewhere in the neighborhood and no one can explain what's going on. Yeah, they're getting more and more alarmed by the minute. So while Belshazzar's freaking out, verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall, Nebuchadnezzar's widow, actually, the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. Take a deep breath, Bell. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And on the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. All of the guys that you've, you've got here trying to understand this, he was the boss of all of them. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving rhythm, uh, riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in Daniel, whom the king named uh, Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he'll give the interpretation. Back in Daniel 2, he interpreted a dream. That's the reason he found favor with Nebuchadnezzar. It was not as popular with Belshazzar, but Nebuchadnezzar's widow remembered it's, you know, like the, like the guy at work who, there's, there's this one thing that only one person at work knows how to do, and that's how he keeps a job. <laughs> so they locate Daniel. And for the next 10 verses, we won't read them, Belshazzar's trying to flatter Daniel. And Daniel's not buying it because he's been down that road before. Skip down to verse 22. Daniel plays his hands without even reading the cards. He doesn't even know what's going on, but he knows God. And he knows the character of God. And so he doesn't need to see this writing. He doesn't need to be read in on all of the details to know what's going on. He knows that there's a reckoning happening. So he describes to Belshazzar, hey, you ever hear the story about how your dad came to know the true and living God? How God gave him a second chance and he took it? But you, verse 22, his son Belshazzar, not so much. You have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. You, you knew the story. I know you knew the story. But you didn't heed the story. And in, in fact, you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, verse 23. And, and look, they've brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You've, 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 he praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. In fact, you've done the opposite of that. You've mocked him. You've ridiculed him. I don't know what's happening, but I'm sure that there's a cause and effect. I'm sure that whatever is troubling you is a result of your heart against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's looking around. He, 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 he doesn't need to know the details to know the results are predictable. God is slow to anger, but he won't be mocked forever. And sure enough, verse 24, then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written, and this inscription was written, mene, mene, tekel, upfarsin. This is the interpretation of each word, mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. And this is where we get the expression, your number's up. 
Yeah, God has counted. Oh, hey, we're at the end. You're done. Game over. Tackle. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Another expression that we use today. And Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Why could Daniel read this and the others couldn't? We don't know for sure. The Talmud, the compilation of the various teachings of the various rabbis about the law, the, the commentary on the law written by the rabbis says that Daniel was able to spot that it was written upside down and backward. That's the Talmud, that's not the word of God saying that, but that's one possible explanation. In, interesting, like, sort of side note. Every time I read this story, I'm reminded of the fact that all of the languages of the world face Jerusalem. It's the upside down and backwards that gets me thinking of it. All of, this, all of the world civilizations west of Jerusalem read left to right the way that we do, because we're west of Jerusalem. East of Jerusalem, Hebrew, Aramaic, Kurdish, Arabic read right to left. Isn't that interesting? Back to our story. However he's able to interpret it, Daniel's able to interpret it, and that was the interpretation. Belshazzar's response is bizarre. Verse 29, Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom, the third in command, which is not the response I'd expect. Think about it. If, if, if you told a king or a president, even the governor of Kansas, hey, because of your sin, God is going to allow your land to be invaded and you're going to be conquered and overthrown, I wouldn't expect to be rewarded. How does this make sense? O only thing I can figure is, is it some kind of, okay, now that we know the future, can we change the future? Now that we know that that's the future, can we keep it from happening? Can we create an alternate timeline, a Kelvin universe? A, and, and before you say, Patrick, you're getting weird, Satan does it. Satan has read the book of Revelation he knows how the story ends, but what is he doing? He's continuing to try to change the future. So it makes a certain amount of bizarre sense that those under Satan's sway, and that would certainly include the king of Babylon, would likewise try to change the future. Except it doesn't work out that way. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede, received the kingdom. He was one of Cyrus's generals, one of Cyrus's um, subordinates. How'd that happen? Secular historians like Herodotus tell us the story. A few weeks earlier, a few weeks before this fateful evening, Cyrus's army defeated the Babylonians upstream from the city, and they diverted the Euphrates River into a canal. What was the effect of that? The Euphrates ran right into Babylon. As the Euphrates dried up, they were able to march into the city in the dry or nearly dry riverbed, lower than the gates anticipated 
anybody coming and were able to take the city by surprise. Different historians differ a little bit on the details. Some historians say that's, that, that was where all of the forces entered. Others say no, that was just a, 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 a commando group that then proceeded to open the gates. And still other historians say, well, the gates were inexplicably left unlocked that night. However it happens, at least some of them entered following the Euphrates. They took the city with minimal bloodshed and almost no damage to the city. What does this have to do with Isaiah? Go back to where we left off. Hopefully you still have your finger in chapter 44. Keep a finger in Daniel, by the way, if it's not too late. If it is, it's all right. Back to Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I'm the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. Daniel points out, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's dad, came to know, came to believe, accepted that truth. Belshazzar rejected it, defied it, mocked it. And so what happened that evening when God said, your number's up, you've been weighed and found a little short. Verse 25, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. The astrologers, the diviners, the magicians that, uh, that Belshazzar called together, they were all frustrated. They couldn't read it. And is this perhaps a nod to what, uh, what the Talmud says, that it was written backwards? who turns wise men backward. The handwriting on the wall drove them crazy. That's verse 25. Skip to verse 26, look down at verse 27. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I'll dry up your rivers. This is how Cyrus invaded. Keep going, verse 1 of chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I've held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings. Remember what we saw about Belshazzar losing bowel control. Loose the armor of kings, same thing. It's not polite, but it's what the Bible tells us. To open before him the double door so the gates will not be shut. That's how the army entered. I'll go before you and make the crooked places straight. The Euphrates instead of winding its way into Babylon, is shunted straight off into a canal. I'll break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. Cyrus's army didn't need to cut the bars or storm the gates. God allowed them to enter without resistance. He made the gates and the bars irrelevant. But, but what has to impress Cyrus even more than the details of the battle, even more than the details of what happened in the banquet hall that night, was the fact that the scroll of Isaiah is calling him by name 150 years before he was, you know, written at least 150 years beforehand, probably 150 years before he was born. Verse, 40, uh, verse 28 to 44, God says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd. Cyrus is my shepherd. He'll perform all my pleasure. He'll say to Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple, your foundation should be laid. In chapter 45, if Cyrus is wondering, you sure you're talking about the right guy? Do you have the right Cyrus? 
Verse 3, I'll give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name. Yes, I'm talking to you. This is a reference to the conquest of Lydia. Ten years or so earlier, Cyrus had conquered Lydia and captured its capital, Sardis. Why is that important? In capturing Sardis, he captured the extreme, extreme wealth of King Croesus, one of the wealthiest men of the ancient world, who had silver mines and gold mines and unspeakable treasure that he stored, wait for it, in underground tunnels. Treasures of darkness, verse 3, hidden riches of secret places. God is saying, yeah, Cyrus, I'm talking to you. The only reason that you got this far is I've been with you every step of the way. I've been engineering your military campaigns. I brought you to this place, and I opened the doors so that you could conquer this place. Here in this scroll, imagine being Cyrus. God that you've never met said, hey, God, God, God wrote a letter to you. <laughs> Describing his deeds of conquest. Why? Why is God doing this? Three reasons, and he's already given us one. Verse three, so you'll know I'm the God of Israel. That was reason number one. Belshazzar didn't, didn't take the same opportunity that his father had. But God is merciful. He's the God of second chances. Cyrus, I want you to know who I am so you can make a decision about me. There are those who try hard to believe that Cyrus accepted God as, as his God, as the God. And yeah, there are signs that he was sympathetic to Yahweh. Unfortunately, that seems to have been his policy. He was sympathetic. He would fold the, the deities of whatever people group he conquered into his, his own pantheon of, of deities. So, yes, he sometimes, in, in writing in inscriptions that we have, mentions Yahweh, but he also mentions other gods at the same time, like Marduk, a Babylonian god. But God gave him a chance, is the point. Why did, why did God engineer all of this first reason? So that Cyrus would come face to face with the God of Israel. That's reason one. It's always reason one, if you think about it. I am the Lord your God, and you'll have no other gods before me. That's first principle. Reason number two that God engineered all of this. Verse, verse four he did it for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect. I've even called you by your name. I've named you, though you've not known me. God had promises to keep to Israel. Promises from long ago about descendants and sands and seashores. Descendants from which would come a line, from which would come Messiah. But also more near-term promises. Promises that he gave to Jeremiah. You can flip over to Jeremiah 25 or just listen. Part of why Cyrus was the time was right. Jeremiah 25, roughly the same time Isaiah is writing, Jeremiah is prophesying about the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah 25, 8, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not heard my words, behold, I'll send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them, and make an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. For how long? 
Verse 11, this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Why 70 years? On the list of things I need to dig into, one of the things that I've heard teachers teach was that 70 years, God calculated that based on the number of Sabbaths that Israel had ignored, the number of Sabbaths for the land. They were supposed to farm for six years and the seventh year allow any given plot of land to remain fallow, to have a Sabbath for the land. And Israel, we know that it's true that Israel along the, along the way chose to ignore that. 490 would get us 70 years. I, don't, I haven't found a good basis for believing that that's why 70 years, but I don't have another explanation either. So study, if, if anyone has anything good, let me know. Um, I'm still working on that. But, but what we know is that it's 70 years. Then what happens, verse 12, then it'll come to pass when 70 years are completed, that I'll punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I'll make it a perpetual desolation. So for you know, whatever the reason the 70 years is 70 years, the 70 years is up, Cyrus captures Babylon. <coughs> That's, and, and, and if we go back to chapter 44, verse 26, at that point, Cyrus is in a position to fulfill the rest of chapter 44, to say to Jerusalem, you'll be inhabited, to say to Judah, you'll be rebuilt, I'll raise up her waste places. And we read in Ezra chapter 1 last week how that happened, how the, Cyrus released the Jews, allowed them to return, actually instructed them to rebuild the city, returned to them the, the temple fixtures and the vessels, actually helped finance the project. Something that I forgot and, and was reminded of this week, Harry Truman after Israel was, was uh, reborn as a state, somebody said to Harry Truman, you know, you really played a significant role in the rebirth of Israel. And Harry Truman said, what do you mean? I helped? I didn't help, I'm Cyrus. So, <laughs> Harry knew his Bible. But back to Isaiah 45, the third reason God chose Cyrus, said there were three reasons. One, that Cyrus would know that, that it's God. Two, for Israel's sake, God had promises to keep. Third reason, verses 5 and 6. Third reason God chose Cyrus. I'm the Lord and there's no other. There's no God beside me. I'll gird you even though you haven't known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there's none beside me. I'm the Lord and there is no other. The third reason God chose Cyrus as a testimony to the nations that the Gentiles, we're, we're the they of, of verse 6, that we would know that God is who he says he is. That wasn't widely recognized in Cyrus's day, but it's happened since then. People like me <laughs> read these prophecies and are blown away and acknowledge God's uniqueness. I'm a fulfillment of verse 6. I got to know God because of Cyrus. I got to know that there's none beside him, verse 6, that he's the Lord and no other, that he formed the light and created darkness, that he makes peace and creates calamity, that he does these things. And that's not just our, my story, it's our story. Because that's the message we're called to carry to the world. Most of the world is like Belshazzar, and, and all of the things that Daniel said that are true about Belshazzar back in chapter 5, it's true for most of the people around us. Most people that we know haven't humbled their hearts 
Although in their hearts they know that God is, is the Most High who rules over his creation, Romans 1. Most have lifted themselves up against the Lord of heaven. And, and maybe not literally, but figuratively, they've taken the vessels of his house and polluted them. Most today praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone and silicon and rare earth elements which do not see or hear or know and don't glorify God who holds our breath in one hand and owns all of our ways. Most of the world is feasting <coughs> as in the days of Noah. Most of the world is partying oblivious to the storm clouds gathering on the horizon. But we're not called to be most of the world. We're called to be like Daniel, who knew the word of God and knew the God of the word, who was able to look at what was happening around him and say, look, it's exactly what God said would happen. It's right on schedule. Daniel knew God's word. Daniel knew the God of the word. Even before Belshazzar asks, Daniel knows what's up. This is what's happening. And this is why it's happening. It's because you are who you are. And you're doing what you're doing. And God is who he is. And his plan is unfolding. Is, is that us? Are we able? Are we willing to look the Belshazzars of the world in the eye, the Cyruses of the world. Are we look, willing to, to look those that God is raising up in the eye and, and, and say to them, this is you? Are we, are, we, are we willing, are we able to say to the sinner, this is you? Are we willing, are we able to say to the believer that God has called and gifted for a time of such as this, this is you? And you need to read this, and you need to believe this, and you need to act on this. Before we can, we need to read it. We need to believe it. We live in a time where the internet is made an expert out of everyone. And people are equipped like never before with what they believe are good reasons to deny that God's word is God's word. Books have been lost. Books have been mistranslated. We don't know what the Bible really says. Why the Bible and not other holy works? When we were in Romans chapter 3, we actually spent a Sunday morning on this. And <coughs> I, I hope that you've taken that to heart. Are you as equipped to present someone with the truth as the skeptics of our world are to reject the truth? Are you as willing and able and, and, and ready to defend the truth as the skeptic is to reject it? Daniel met Cyrus, and he says, hey, you should read this, and then we should talk about it. I'll explain it to you. Are, are, are you ready to do that? Why should someone believe the Bible? Prophecy is obviously my favorite answer because it's the one that gripped me. It has everything to do with why I'm here tonight. But can you talk about the internal consistency of Scripture? The documentary consistency, the fact that we could reconstruct the New Testament from commentaries on the New Testament, the scientific accuracy, history, archaeology. 
Can you point out the frailty of people in the Bible? The Bible doesn't glorify the people of the Bible. They're men and women with faults just like us. The brutality that the apostles endured. 11 out of 12 apostles gave their life for the gospel. Who leaves down their life for a conspiracy? And then there's the testimony. Your testimony, the testimony of people around you, that God changes lives. Most important, though, and this is where we'll wrap up tonight, Daniel 5.14. Part of what we skipped over, Belshazzar, flattering Daniel, says something that's true. Belshazzar says, I've heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Why did Belshazzar ask? Because people saw something in Daniel that was otherworldly. Prophecy proves to us that the Bible comes from outside our space-time continuum. And that's cool if someone is willing to pick up the Bible and study it. Why would they do that? Most likely, it's because there's something going on in the person carrying the Bible that is likewise supernatural, that is just as otherworldly and inexplicable. We can't count on the Bible to leap off the shelves and into people's hands. God has entrusted his message to us to carry and to be excited and to talk about, but most of all, to believe and to live. So Lord, we ask that you would continue your work in us, continue equipping us, preparing us, continue anointing us for that mission, for that ministry. Knowledge is so good. The knowledge of your word is precious treasure. But we need the baptism of your spirit. We need a fresh filling of your spirit that we would speak with contagious enthusiasm, with passion of people who not only know the book, but know the author intimately. Who are able to say, I was talking to him today. He was explaining something to me yesterday. He was showing me something just this week. Lord, continue to fuel that hunger that we have for you and continue to satiate it and continue to fuel it and continue to satisfy it and continue to draw us deeper and deeper. We ask in your holy name. Amen.